Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and it is Monday. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's been a quick weekend. Always has been. But uh, anyways, I hope everyone's day is going well so far, staying uh, safe and sane. <laughs> um, I wanted to start today by just mentioning that I saw over the weekend our buddy Republican Senator Rick Scott. Apparently, he criticized Republican leadership. He said because they were trash-talking the party's Senate candidates. <laughs> which apparently is a dig at our friend Senator Mitch McConnell. And I, I find this actually kind of funny because I, I first think Rick Scott is <laughs> an atrocious senator. And it's just funny that he's pretty much lost all these funds that the Republicans were supposed to use on the midterms. And now he's saying, oh, we have great candidates. Why are you trash talking them? It's like <sighs> Herschel Walker, Mehmet Oz, J.D. Vance. Yeah, there's a few I could name, man. Maybe you guys shouldn't have spent so much money on some of these people. But anyways, you know, it's just all all parody. And I, I know I'm a broken record, but you just can't write some of this stuff. So we're not going to. <laughs> we're going to move on. Um, a lot I want to talk about today. I want to talk about a kind of disturbing water crisis in Mississippi I want to talk about floods last week in Pakistan, and I want to discuss something I don't totally agree with, but I think is interesting, climate reparations in the globe, basically, because obviously climate change is getting worse, not better. So those are a few things I want to talk about today. So to start, I want to talk about an issue that apparently has been going on for a month, but only really came to my attention last week, and it's a water crisis that's mainly focused in Jackson, Mississippi. And it has a lot of echoes to the Flint, Michigan crisis, which happened, you know, back during the Obama years. I'll get into the details in a moment. But the city has been on boil water warnings for about a month. But now there's places in the city that are just completely out of water, have no water pressure, blah, blah, blah. And it's just not good. And it's kind of disturbing for... It's, I mean, Jackson is the capital of Mississippi. And it's just kind of disturbing that they're having this issue because it sounds like something that you would think would not happen in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Before I get into why, of course there's political issues here. There's political, there's political issues just painted all over this. And uh, before I get into that, I will give you a little background. So basically there's been really bad flooding over the last few weeks in the area. And after water issues, the city lost access to safe running water. Before we even move on further, I should paint a picture of the city. It's a mainly black city with about 150,000 people. And it's one of those cities that has seen a huge rise in inequality. On top of that, it has similar issues to some of these older towns, cities like Detroit, where it had a larger population a few generations ago, I guess, I guess you could say. And a lot of wealthier white people left the city. And as they did, the tax base has shrunk and... The city's kind of been unable to fund infrastructure projects, keep everything running at top shape, basically. And to put it diplomatically, things have gone to shit, basically. And that's what's occurred in Jackson. And I'm not calling the city a bad place. I'm just saying the reality is, is that the tax base has kind of dried, uh, dried up. Sorry. And it's one of those cases, too, where I'd imagine if this was still a wealthy area, this water issue probably would have never happened. Or if it did, they would have got it resolved quite quickly. And that's just the way, unfortunately, things are sometimes. And also this will be uh, an important layer later when I discuss the collaborative failures here. Anyways, I will get back to all of that in a bit. But The Guardian has a piece from a few days ago that discusses how most of the population had already been without drinking water for more than a month. It says in quotes, 
However, flooding last weekend caused by weeks of rain further interrupted operations in the city's beleaguered main water plant. Currently, large numbers have nothing coming out of their taps, and for those that do, it must be boiled before being consumed. People have expressed uh, turning on their taps and seeing brown water or nothing at all. And of course, things are getting bad because over the last weekend, so a few days ago, temperatures were in the 90s on Thursday and Friday. And I cannot confirm because I haven't been to that area, but I bet that's brutal because I'm assuming it's quite humid as well. And so that's really tough, you know. And now the, now the city has responded the best they can, I mean, obviously, by setting up distribution sites to get the basic needs to the people. But, you know, you can't shower or clean up or even flush the toilet, apparently, in the house. So, you know, it's, it's kind of disturbing. Um, I've been seeing photos of people, you know, getting these watered from the distribution sites. And it just feels like something, again, like I said, that just should not be happening in the United States. I also read in the Guardian article I was mentioning earlier that the population says high water bills, or sorry, sorry, let me repeat that. The, the population has been paying high water bills, and they're obviously not getting their returns on that, which is pretty insane, considering that there's no water, but apparently they have ex just extravagant bills. Oh, and to make this even more fun, there is poor water pressure in the houses. So even like the bad water, you can't, there's not enough pressure basically to even be able to flush the toilet. So yeah, you can't drink the water and also you can't use the bathroom for number two in your house. So yeah, just really not good. I think a general concern here is that the situation has raised questions about the impact of underinvestment, like I mentioned earlier, since a lot of the wealthier families, white families have abandoned the city. And you know what? I usually don't go into identity politics, as you guys are aware, and I stray from blaming some of these issues on just race alone, because I think sometimes it's things are not as black and white. But in, in this case, it's pretty hard to deny. Uh, the city's been neglected, and it's definitely on grounds of race and systemic issues, for sure. There's just no way to really go around that, you know what I mean? And the Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition which brings together more than 30 organizations across the state, is seeking about $2 million in donations to basically collaborate with the local government, but it's even expressing anger. It says in quotes here, after more than five decades of neglect by the state, residents in older cities like Jackson have been forced to carry the financial burden of fragile infrastructure and have been exposed regularly to the health risks associated with the need for constant repair. And it's a, I, I can't disagree. I can't disagree. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk about it in a little bit, but Mississippi is not exactly a state that's been investing in these type of communities either. So, this, so there's a lot of finger pointing here to go around, I think. I should also note that the city, again, kind of going back to what I mentioned earlier, has a population that is 83% black and a poverty level of 25%, so one in four. And the state has a poverty level of 18.7, so it's definitely above the national or the state average. And it just seems to me something is not working there, and it's clear that the state government has not done enough. There's also probably finger-pointing to be done at the federal government. The Guardian also brings up a point that really cannot be ignored. It says, in quotes, Between 1980 and 2000, Jackson changed from a majority white population to a majority black population. Thousands of white people left the city in the decades after the U.S. Supreme Court forced public schools and facilities to desegregate gutting Jackson's tax base and reducing investment in infrastructure. So I, I know I keep saying the same thing, but yeah, I, I just can't highlight enough that I don't think this would happen. Like, like 
I guess the way I look at it is like think about Flint, Michigan, for example. That would not have happened in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right? And I think the same can be said here. Now, I don't actually know that many cities in Mississippi, so I can't draw comparisons. That's why I say Flint versus Ann Arbor. But it's something similar. I'm sure there's wealthy suburbs outside of Jackson, and they probably wouldn't have the same issue. Now, now I want to touch on the collaborative management side here for a second, and I guess more on the failures of collaborative management between these different layers of government. So the governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, is an interesting guy. I know him more for his inability to answer whether they would ban abortion completely, because he's obviously quite a right-leaning governor. But in this case, he is now eh, getting involved a little late, but he's getting involved in this. He sent a request to Joe Biden for federal assistance to deal with the problem. Of course, that is the best thing to do, so I'm not going to criticize him on that. And Biden approved a measure to have the emergency response arm of the government step in and provide assistance. And according to The, Gar uh, the Guardian, in quotes, the U.S. government will pay for 75% of the costs of dealing with this and fixing the water treatment problem for the next 90 days. So that's good, 90 days, you know, get some work done. I would assume this is going to take longer than 90 days, but yeah, they're doing something. This is good news in theory, but I do think it's missing the fact that the federal government is stepping in after a failure, when I personally think this was a state issue that was never resolved, fixed, or even focused on. I've been skimming local news out of Mississippi and out of the Jackson area, and apparently a big story is that the mayor of Jackson, Chokwe Antar Lumumba, excuse me, and the governor of Mississippi appeared together for the first time for a press conference. It's sad that that's big news, that the mayor of the city impacted and the governor are meeting for the first time. But <laughs> I, unsurprisingly, I guess, the two have been in kind of a stalemate for a long time. The mayor, Lamumba, is a self-described socialist, which it's a whole other story, but he's a self-described socialist. Re or, uh, Tate, sorry, Tate Reeves is a... Uh, not self-describes, but an actual just right-wing governor, so they don't get along. The state is quite red, and the mayor is quite blue. Jackson's quite blue, so there's probably some conversations to be had about why the, the state may be kind of neglecting to work with the city. But anyways, I remember reading how much Governor Reeves has also cut certain state infrastructure and spending programs, so one could only imagine that a lot of attention has not been paid to this issue, but the two have met. Um, they're working on resolving this, so that is all good. I'm not going to criticize that at this point. Now's not the time to criticize them working together. The sad part here is that I am really a proponent of collaborative management, which kind of, I guess, is the state government working with local actors, working with the third sector, which is the nonprofit sector, Basically, instead of each group doing their own role, they kind of share roles and share hierarchies and fill in the gaps. Um, I've told you guys time and time again, I'm a small government guy. I do not always enjoy federal involvement. I think um, collaborative networks are actually kind of a good alternative to federal spending and federal involvement. Basically, yeah, you're obviously going to get different types of block grants from the federal government, for example. but basically the state, local, and third sector partners use these funds. There's a great author, Agronoff, who has some writings on this topic and discusses how this has happened in places like Montana, different ruralities in Indiana. It, it actually can be quite effective if there's a willingness for these partners to work together. And in my master's program, I took a very useful class called Public Organization Theory and Management. 
and it caused a, kind of a light bulb to go off in my head about why some of our institutions are not working as well as they were intended to do. And, you know, as there is this crisis of legitimacy involving our democracy, institutions, whatever you want to say, I have heard, you know, numerous people discuss how nothing works anymore and our system has failed. And it's true, nothing is working right now. And this class kind of helped me understand the different periods of management and organization theories. And, you know, the, the kind of thing we usually do in the United States is throw money into a government agency or a bureau or whatever it may be, and you just hope to get something out of it. It's kind of like a vending machine. You put in money and you hope to get one thing in return. Well, a lot of these problems, like a water crisis or a hurricane or whatever it may be, you can't just put in money and hope that one organization is going to going to put something out that's effective, right? And this, uh, this class not only focused on the different ways that bureaucracies are managed, but it also looked into collaborative network management and how open systems um, approaches to public management can help create networks. And basically an open system kind of throws out these siloed industries, throws out hierarchies, and focuses on letting different pieces work interdependently. And in the class, we talked about wicked problems like Hurricane Katrina and how the problem was is that all like the federal, the state and local at first were kind of siloed off and insular. And I, I feel like in the case of this Mississippi problem, that's what's happened is you have like a locality and a state that are insular from one another and aren't collaborating. And I, I just think this is kind of a failure. And so I, I hope people can learn from this. Anyways, that's, that's my rant aside on that. <laughs> Moving on, it's not a perfect segue, but I think it kind of works because some people have argued that this Mississippi crisis was worsened by flooding, which was intensified by climate, climate change activity. And the same can be said about some recent revelations in Pakistan. Oops, sorry, I got something loud out there. Um, recent revelations in Pakistan. There's been some atrocious floods happening in Pakistan over the last month, but specifically over the last week. And I, I think these floods highlight serious issues that must be addressed. Before I get into my thoughts on this, I want to read a headline from a new article from The Atlantic, uh, the, not The Atlantic, The Economist from this week that really highlights why this is an issue. It also paints a picture of how bad things are getting. So the article reads in quotes here, exceptionally heavy monsoon rains over two months have caused devastating floods in Pakistan, killing more than 1,100 people and leaving a third of the country underwater. Shehbaz Sharif, the prime minister, said that a million homes have been wrecked and thousands of miles of roads destroyed. Thousands. The climate minister described it as catastrophic, blaming countries that have become rich on the back of fossil fuels. And that we're going to get into that later, but that's also part of it. Um, the, the Economist also goes on on a different part to say, separately, the IMF approved a $1.1 billion payout to Pakistan after the government implemented an austerity budget which included sharp increases in fuel and food prices amid high inflation. So... Yes, it is uh, not going well. It's too bad to see. But things are breaking down in Pakistan, I would say, both economically and on the climate front and on the infrastructure front. So it's just really not good to see. And this is after a summer, you know, that we've seen brutal floods in Germany, heat waves throughout the United States and Europe, floods in the United States, Pakistan, Central Asia. Not not good. Also, crises all over, you know, the Sahel of Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, United States, or sorry, United Nations officials have described these floods as monsoons on steroids, lovely name. And I'm looking at a photo right now uh, of the area that has been covered by these floods. And it honestly looks like a giant lake has been formed kind of throughout Pakistan. Like 
the before and after pictures are pretty dramatic. I encourage people to check them out because it's pretty insane. And according to CNN, this year's monsoon is already the country's wettest since records began in 1961. And according to the Pakistan Meteorological Department, the season still has one month to go. <laughs> so it, it's still not over. And while the death and size of the floods are bad enough, it just also impacted an insane amount of people. Prime Minister Zardari said that he has visited these areas over the week, and he said, in quotes, there is barely any dry land where we can find. The scale of this tragedy is 33 million people. That's more than the population of Sri Lanka or Australia, end quotes. He continued saying, in quotes, while we understand that the new reality of climate change means more extreme weather or monsoons, more extreme heat waves like we saw earlier this year, the scale of the current flood is of apocalyptic proportions. We certainly hope it's not a new climate reality. Sorry, my friend, it probably is. The problem here is that while the series of floods was the worst in history for Pakistan, this whole summer has actually seen devastating floods across the region as well. The Economist mentions that unusually intense monsoons have wrecked havoc in South Asia this year. In May and June, it inundated swaths of Bangladesh and northeastern India, killing hundreds and displacing millions. Something interesting, too, is that I guess in Bangladesh, they were able to kind of I guess some be somewhat prepared for this because they created defensive barriers and better infrastructure in low plains areas. However, in Pakistan, political issues, gridlock, and austerity measures, like I mentioned, have not helped. And that Economist article on the floods brings up a good point about how countries like Pakistan have been suffering from political issues, and these types of climate crises may just make that worse. I have not talked about this too much on the podcast, but uh, Pakistan has a pretty strange system of government, and Imran Khan, who was the former prime minister, was ousted by the military, and he kind of wants to do the same to his successor. He's been doing rallies, trying to get back into power. He's a, he's a unique figure, to say the least, and since these floods, he's been kind of exploiting the crisis to get political points against, against the current prime minister, and... In the end, it honestly may help him because he has a huge following, but it also may just jeopardize the government's relief efforts, so it's a lose-lose. There also have been riots and growing unease in Pakistan, as well as other places that have been impacted by similar issues. And I cannot help but think that along with these climate warnings, I guess if you want to call them that, these events are going to lead to more upheaval and instability. Shockingly large numbers of people are going to be forced to leave their homes in the coming decades, and... Who knows what form of political violence that will bring? I remember reading, uh, oh, it had to be a decade ago now, that the Department of Defense, back in the early days of the Syrian Civil War, identified climate change as a serious threat to climate or to national security for the United States. And some of the rationale involved what happened when climate change exacerbated uh, famines and forced farmers to relocate to cities like, D like Damascus, Syria. And these displaced farmers were susceptible to recruiting and radicalization by groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, whatever it may be. And you have to wonder if there's going to be more of this radicalization and anger that grows. It's, it's somewhat troubling, if you're, you know, if, if you're being honest. And there's a foreign uh, policy article that notes that over the next 30 years, the climate crisis will displace more than 140 million people within their own countries and many more beyond them. It writes in quotes here, global warming doesn't respect lines on a map. It will drive massive waves of displacement across national borders, as it has in Guatemala and Africa's Sahel region. <clears throat> Excuse me, losing my voice. Basically, the article writes that a great climate migration is not only inevitable, but it is also already happening. 
To help fight this issue, the international community will need to approach politics in a different and more creative manner. Experts have discussed the idea of climate reparations, which may sound quite radical, but it could be one of the only options, other than what, <laughs> other than the alternative, which is bad, which uh, foreign policy calls climate colonization, which in quotes would mean the survival of the wealthiest and devastation of the world's most vulnerable people. Now, I wish there were other options because historically I'm not a huge fan of the idea of reparations, but in, in the lens of the systems in the world, there is a case to be made. You know, geez, I guess I'm putting on my lefty hat today here, but anyways, it does seem inevitable that as things get worse in poorer and developing countries, there are going to be people that are going to be mainly hurt by climate change, and there's going to be growing divisions in society, and of course, within countries at least, for a while the wealthy elite will be able to flee or pay to survive the worst parts, you know, while the rest are increasingly suffering. That's pretty common. I mean, even in some of the poorest countries, there's always a small elite that'll be able to leave or do something to survive. The, the issue, though, I've, I've seen people throw out the term climate apartheid to describe this. Maybe I'll just call it climate, climate inequality. But whatever you call it, it's definitely a real thing for sure. There is no lie that the wealthy are good at sheltering themselves from reality. I was reading an interesting article that mentions this happening in Lagos, Nigeria already. The article discusses in quotes here, the government cleared hundreds of thousands of, sw of slum dwellers here to make way for developers. The so-called Great Wall of Lagos seawall will shield a planned luxury community on Victoria Island from sea level rise at the expense of neighboring areas. And going back to that foreign policy article, it basically argues that stories like this will happen more frequently and on a global scale. You'll just have some countries kind of sheltering themselves off from others. Not a great, not a great scenario. And the article also discusses how these factors are shaped by, you know, something obvious, I guess, existing global injustices, the history of slavery, colonialism, imperialism that enriched some countries at the expense of others. I mean, look at Pakistan part of the British Empire for a long time, India as well. Like these are countries that kind of, I guess, started behind, right? And now they're the ones that after starting behind now have to almost go ahead of wealthier countries in dealing with climate change. Definitely something I would say is not fair. Climate change has made this worse and it means that certain countries just will not be able to respond. And uh, basically the world is going to need some new and creative theories, some sort of innovation in international relations, because our current theories, as much as I like a lot of them involving like military conflicts, I'm somewhat re somewhat of a realist when it comes to like issues like what's happening in Russia or whatever. But I don't know if realism or pragmatism or even constructivism actually works when you're talking about climate change, because it's something that these theories were never meant to address, right? And I don't even know, though, to be honest, how climate reparations would work. The term reparations usually refers to making amends. It often connotes one-off cash transfers or apologies or cash payments, right? And to me, it's hard to understand how this would be helpful if the crisis would be long-living and systemic, right? It's not like, oh, we'll just help you get back on your feet here. This would be more like, this is a crisis that might get worse every year going forward. So, yeah, that could be difficult. But... At least from my understanding in the foreign policy article on this, climate reparations would involve an international change to how countries work together. <laughs> Dare I say it, somewhat of a, a, 
approach to global socialism. God, I can't believe I'm saying that out loud. But from my research for the podcast, that does seem like what they're talking about is some kind of redefining of how global economies work together. Foreign policy doesn't quite say global socialism, so I'll, I'll read this quote instead. It says here, climate reparations are better understood as a systemic approach to redistributing resources and changing policies and institutions that have been perpetuated harm, rather than discrete exchange of money or of apologies. So yeah, that answers my earlier question. It wouldn't just be cash transfers or apologies. It would be redistributing resources and changing policies. I don't know how that will go over <laughs> with a lot of countries, but it's an interesting idea to say the least. And I also don't know how this would begin. Also, even organizations like the World Bank and the IMF have always been problematic, you know, putting out these loans starting kind of in the 70s, moving to today, that have really just put a lot of these countries in debt traps. So I would probably say maybe start by reforming the IMF and the World Bank so they're actually helping countries instead of putting them in these debt traps that may give them cash in the short term but be problematic in the long term. Privatization sometimes is not the answer either. You know, it, yeah, I mean, it, it would be really tough because, like, you know, countries can't even agree on how to do this. So I think capitalism is a great form of growth, and it's caused innovation. It's brought up a lot of the world with it, for sure. But something I grapple with is the fact that it also does require winners and losers. You just can't deny that. And as the world is bigger, hotter, and dirtier, I just cannot help but wonder if we need at least some form of more equitable capitalism, if that can even exist. I don't know. It could be antithetical, but I, one can hope, I guess, because I don't really want to get rid of capitalism. And honestly, I'm not even sure if climate reparations would work in the real world, but it is an interesting thing to think about. And again, we're going to have to follow this just kind of going forward because it's an interesting conversation that's being had, but... You just have to remember, like, the United States, for example, couldn't even agree on staying in the Paris Climate Accords. And I just think about how, like, what happens if, you know, every four years we get a different president now? Because I, I feel like we're in the era of the ever-shifting pendulum. Like, it used to be every eight years. I think we're going to see, like, every four years some shifts. And, you know, if you see rising populism, which we're seeing in Europe, rising demands for isolationism, if more and more democracies become isolated and less liberal, I think we're also going to see issues with actually bringing people together as well. So I'm not optimistic about this, but it's just something does need to change because the world is not not in a great place right now, and it's probably going to get worse. So yeah, I'll leave it on that happy note. Anyways, I want to thank you guys for listening. Apple Podcasts, iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, Podbean, all that jazz. I'll be back later in the week, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Take care.